Welcome to Women in Science, a podcast series where we interview some inspiring women who are breaking barriers in their fields and making remarkable contributions to research. We chat to them about the science they love and their unique journeys as scientists. I'm Dr. Kirsty Short, and in this first episode, we chat to the inspirational Professor Nina Mitter. The University of Queensland agricultural scientist is internationally recognised for developing bioclay, a revolutionary, environmentally sustainable alternative to chemicals and pesticides for crop protection. Now she's smashing avocado shortages by speeding up the growth and the yield of avocado trees. Nina, could you maybe start by telling us uh, a little bit about your background? Where did you do your undergraduate training? Where did you do your postdoctoral training? How did you end up here? It's a pleasure to be talking to you today. Uh, I am from India, and my undergrad, my postgrad, that was all done at Delhi University in India. When I was growing up, actually, in that time, the norm was either you become a teacher if you're a girl, or you... If you're really brilliant, you try for medicine. If you succeed, that's fine because there's a million applicants or maybe 10 million applicants for medicine in India. But somehow my passion was sort of right from the word go was for the food on the plate or agriculture. So defied some norms of my family and decided to do botany honors about plants at Delhi University and then didn't even blink an eye. It was master's in agriculture and PhD in agriculture at the Indian Agricultural Research Institute. So that sort of put me on track. Or I always say so, the seed in me that I have to deliver something really meaningful on ground. You're making me tell some stories here because my grandfather, and this passion was sown in me by my grandfather. We were a refugee family, actually, who came from when India-Pakistan happened in 1947. My grandfather, who was in railways, was in Lahore, and we ended up in Delhi. And every time he'll tell me a story, it'll be about food on the plate, how important it is to have that. So that's what carried me into the world of agriculture. Did my... Yeah, PhD. And then I started, went out for one year to UK, did my postdoc in UK on growing cucumbers and making them, you know, grow better and not be infected by pests and diseases. Came back to Delhi and started my career as an agricultural research scientist in Delhi. Once again, at that time in Delhi, when you started your agricultural scientist position, you had to do a mandatory field training. So we were adopted by a farmer. We had to really go into a village and work with a farmer for a certain period of time. And I still remember a day, you know, I'm my last day of my training and this very wise old farmer that I'm sitting with. And I'm trying to tell him, biotechnology can solve all the problems in the world. I have all the solutions for you. And he listens to me very patiently and says, daughter, if you can give me a handful of good seed, I can do the rest. And that's remained as my mantra in life. So yes, yeah, spent 10 years in India. The science in India is different now. You know, There's a lot of money, lots of grants, research funding. This environment has changed totally. At that time, it was U.S. was giving us aid to build beautiful infrastructure. So we had good labs, but we didn't have the consumables to do anything. We had equipment. We didn't know how to run that equipment. 
I still remember we will wait to run one gel for a week so that every lane in that gel is full and the power cut is not there and you'll wash your plastic wear 10 times and autoclave it and use it. And so turning point for me to land here in Australia was when there was a DNA synthesizer that we got gifted from USAID program and we couldn't open it for three years. And that's when I decided if I have to make a difference on the ground, I have to look somewhere. And that's what brought me to Australia. So it sounds like a, a quite a unique beginning, but a, a very formative beginning in, in sort of deciding where you've ended up and where you've dedicated your career. Did you face discrimination or challenges by, by taking the unconventional path and, and not becoming a teacher or a medical doctor and really following your passion for agricultural research? Initially, yes, maybe, but I'm a very determined person, you know. Something, if I set my, my eyes on something, I do try. Um, so it wasn't never a question in my mind that anyone would deter me from that path. And also, I feel once you choose a path and you start delivering into it, opinions change and people change and perceptions change. So, yeah, I think I, I showed them that agriculture can women can make a very good career in agriculture. And a fantastic example for all the next generation of Indian women who are thinking of doing the same thing. So when you moved to Australia, it must have, I've moved overseas myself and I know how difficult it would be. Was it very challenging for you not only to up and move countries, but also with your family uh, alongside you at that time? What sort of challenges did you face? Yeah, it was a big move, you know, because no one leaves a permanent government job in India. You know, it's 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 unheard of. So I left my senior scientist career and I started here as a postdoc, you know, right from the entry level. I two suitcases, a two and a half year old in my lap and a husband who didn't have a job at that time. <laughs> I did get my job uh, like before landing here, but that's where we were. And some of the challenges were very confronting as well. My two-and-a-half-year-old daughter was very much used to the extended family, you know, large family. And then it was daycare here. I still remember days when I'll just stand in the fence and peep through it. Has she stopped crying? Is she throwing up? Is she okay? Can I go to work now? And then I remember it was Margaret Cribb. And I'll run during lunchtime. And I'll <laughs> as soon as I have a 20 minutes break, there I was, you know, looking for her. But, yeah. Those are the kind of challenges I think you face. Um, but once again, you need to have resilience to overcome them. And do you think it's really that resilience and your sort of perseverance that got you through that very difficult time? Is there any other pieces of advice you would give to women going through a similar period? Passion. Um, that's been, so resilience is of course important, but then that passion and motivation that's what carries you through and having some sort of a vision inside. Like if you know, you know, that you are going, you're doing something which is really meaningful to you, which makes sense to you and you're passionate about it, you will get there. So my daughter, who was two and a half, she's a doctor now. <laughs> she's just finished and started as a doctor. It was a beautiful thing that she said to me that, Mom, I remember the days when I'll be doing homework in your office, sitting late because you'll pick me up from school and we'll be in your office. And maybe you felt guilty that you didn't cook the proper dinner for us. But look what you have made me into. I'm a very strong woman now. So, yeah. What a wonderful example you gave her. 
It's, um, I think that's something that a lot of working mothers really struggle with, finding that balance. Um, and often it's forgotten that part of that balance is they're setting an, an example for their daughters and their sons about what you can achieve when you set your mind to it. So changing topics a little bit and talking about uh, some of the amazing work that you've done whilst you've been here at UQ, one of the stories that really got to me is because officially on paper, even though I don't feel like it, I'm classed as a millennial. So by definition, that means I have to love smashed avo on toast, which I actually do. Um, so I'm, I'm really used to hearing in the media a lot that our my generation's addiction to this is going to be our financial ruin. Can you tell us a little bit about what your research is doing to stop that and to ensure that on a simplistic level, we can have avocados for all? Oh, thank you. So believe me or not, I had never tasted an avocado in my life in India because we don't have avocados in India. We don't grow avocados in India like we do get now exported from other countries. So I had never tasted one in my life. And the first six months was kind of a love and hate relationship. That took me a while. To <laughs> but now I... My you're fully converted now? It fully converted. And I'm sure my husband is very pleased because he says your midlife crisis love affair with avocado he can live with. <laughs> so it's a good thing. But yeah, I started my avocado research because my area is gene silencing. So I was actually trying to make avocados resistant to disease. And it's a disease that attacks the roots of the plant. But one of my uh, strategic way of doing any research is I go out and meet the people who are actually going to use that technology. So I made it a point that I visited about 30, 40 growers in Queensland. I started talking with them about avocados and, you know, learning. And what came out to me was when I was talking about disease, they were saying to me, Nina, we don't even have enough plants. You know, if we go to a nursery to buy, you know, 100,000 plants for our orchard or 20,000 or 10,000, the answer would be made, put your order now, put the money in and come back in three years. And then that's where it stuck me that there must be something, you know. So I went to the nurseries then and asked them, why, why can't you supply more avocado plants and very soon realized that there's a bottleneck. Avocado just doesn't root. So either you can grow the plant from a seedling, like from avocado seeds, but the avocado seeds are heterozygous. Um, so they're not uniform, gen genetically uniform. So every plant tree could turn out to be a bit different, so which is not very nice for the growers. But if you, you know, take a cutting from a tree and try to make it root with your Bunnings mixture, it would take you 18 months actually to root one cutting to get one tree. So this is where we thought, okay, this needs crying for innovation. And we have now developed a beautiful technique where we get one millimeter of a cutting from an avocado tree and we can get 500 plants out of it. And this is by just, we call it plant stem cells or meristem technology that every cell has the potential to grow into a plant. All we give it is tender love and care. And there it is, starts growing. So I have in my lab at the moment, if people would like to visit, 20,000 trees in a 10 square meter room. <laughs> so roughly how many smashed avos on toast is that? Oh, lots Just so I can plan lots. my breakfast. <laughs> lots and lots of it. <laughs> but all because of my beautiful, beautiful, really wonderful team. So the credit goes to them. I, I just, yeah, I just helped. So do you find, given that, you know, you're engaged in so many diverse projects and you've got so many people working around you. Do you find it difficult to lead and manage that team? And, and what are the sort of tips you have for maintaining a good uh, work environment with such a diverse group of people? 
So for me, I can easily say I would never be able to work if I'm constrained by a discipline or if I draw boundaries around me. What keeps me going is finding a challenge and then trying to find a way to solve it. So I'm not a very technology-driven person. I'm a problem-driven person. So if someone presents me a problem, then I go around to see, you know, what technologies that I can have. And that sort of brings the essence of the team into it because if you're trying to solve a challenge, you do need, you know, that multidisciplinary skills or reaching out to the network to solve that. So in my own team, yes, it's diverse. I'm not only working on avocados, but I'm working on BioClay, which is a crop protection platform using clay particles along with the Australian Institute of Bioengineering and Nanotechnology. And not only on plants, we are working on animal health as well. So I have, uh, I would say, 32 kids in, I have 32 kids now. (laughs) (laughs) And they're all, each one of them is absolutely wonderful. And you asked me how it works. I don't find it at all difficult. What happens is right from the word go, we, when someone joins my team, we have a very, very personal conversation. We sit down, I sit down with that person, understand not only about the career and work plans, about the family, anything going on, whatever they want to share. And that helps me sort of, you know, make that connection. And after that, in my team, what we do is there is sort of a hierarchy of management. So the third-year PhDs will look after the first-year PhD. The first-year PhD will look after the honors. The postdocs will look after the PhDs. And I'm I'm free. So who's looking after you? (laughs) I can help them whenever they want to. Yeah, and I'm there for them. But pretty much, and that's the message to them. They can gang up against me as long as they work together. That's all right. So it's really about creating a, a supportive and collegial environment where everyone feels comfortable no matter what their background is, essentially. Absolutely. And I think that's where my extended family, maybe my cultural heritage helps me. Honestly, it's not very easy when there are large extended families. There's diverse opinions and there are clashes, but you still stick together. And I think that's what I bring in to my team as well. Um, An extended family spirit where every opinion is valued. And I think that's just a, a fantastic ethos to really ensure that there's going to be good, strong, successful research coming out because every voice will be heard. I think I'd like to move on to our quick fire round. So it's no, it's no pressure. It's just a few quick questions. So the first is, could you tell us which woman or women have been the most important influences in your life? Okay, it may sound traditional, but my mother, definitely, she's the one who sort of has shaped my career. 1960s. She was teaching political science at a school. She was the principal of a a government school when I was growing up. So to have a woman as an earning member in the family was something to look up to. Uh, Absolutely. And yeah, you're making me tell stories which I've never said on the podcast before. My mom and dad knew each other before marriage at that time. So, you know, (laughs) thinking about arranged marriages in India. But not only that, at 25, when I was 25 and my brother was 17, we lost our father in a road accident. And my mom was a rock for us, you know, like absolutely stood there and brought us to life and did everything 
for us, sent me overseas to do my postdocs, like didn't flinch. So, yeah, definitely. Um, I think I've got my resilience from her. Mm. Sounds like an incredible role model. Perhaps more of a holistic question now. Overall, do you think that women today face less gender-related obstacles than they did, say, 20 years ago in terms of their career, or has it just changed? I feel that the challenges are there. It's the nature of challenges maybe that has changed. So 20 years ago, maybe it was a different perception. Maybe they were not even looked at that as if they'll compete for that position on the table or, you know, that big role, leadership role. So uh, that was a different challenge for your voice to be heard that, yes, you know, you can be aspire to be that leader. The challenges today, once again, um, it's not only just about being first being in the club colloquially, as you said, but also then fighting for equality in that club as well. I was reading a report just last night from the World Economic Forum, which is the Gender Gap Report 2020. And it was really saying that it will take 99 years for us to reach gender parity if we are keeping on doing the things we are doing now. So still it will take 99 years for gender parity. So, yes, and um, we are making a lot of effort on women in STEM programs, a large number of initiatives. And I know that Australian Academy of Science is actually now going to collect some data on what is the impact that those measures have had, you know. But still, yes, there are challenges. People should realize that it's beautiful to have women on the table to make decisions because it's not only good for women, it's good for all the people and for advancing the society. That's exactly right. Diversity makes us stronger and gives us better science at the end of the day. All right. And finally, I'd just like to ask you what the best piece of advice that you've ever received was or what's the one piece of advice that you would like to pass down to the next generation? Very easy. Choose your partner wisely. It's really important in your scientific career. So, So no matching on Tinder randomly? No, no, not randomly. Put that put that out there. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> that you are a career woman who aspires to be a leader. Yep. So, yeah, even if on Tinder, they should know that. Yep. So surround yourself with people who will support you. Absolutely. Absolutely. Fantastic. Well, thank you so much for all those incredible insights. And we look forward to hearing more about your fantastic research in the near future. Thank you so much. Well, that's all for this episode of Women in Science. In our next episode, we'll meet Professor Christine Beveridge, who got the science bug while studying to be a teacher. This podcast was produced by Dr. Marlou Stecker, Dr. Marina Fortes, Belinda McDougall and Matt Taylor. Technical production was by Daniel Seed. If you enjoyed this podcast, please make sure you subscribe or like wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Dr. Kirsty Short. Thanks for listening.